What great promises we have in the Lord Jesus Christ. Just want to mention that the Ingebretsons are back with us today. So glad y'all are here. And we want to continue praying for David, Roger's brother, the one that was shot. We prayed for him last week, shot in the head, shot in the stomach. He's still medically sedated right now. Needs prayer. They still don't know the Lord, right? Need to pray for their salvation. Okay, and then another uh, serious situation. Many of you know Chris and Pam Hopper. Uh, well, Hoffman, sorry, that's their, that's their married name, Hoffman. So Pam's sister, Mary Kay Hopper Miller, is in a coma right now, and they have to decide within a short time if they pull the ventilator, and so the, the prayer is that she'll just wake up on her own. Yeah. We've been praying that for about four days, that she just wake up. They quit sedating her four days ago, but she won't wake up. So that's another one, Mary Kay and David. If y'all will keep praying for them. <clears throat> Let's go to John chapter 6. So Reuben shared from the first verses of John 6 last week. I know many of you were blessed by his ministry of the word, how Jesus uses the bread and how he blessed and broke and gave the bread out to the disciples who gave it to the multitudes, and that's how he deals with us often. If you are not here, you're going to want to hear that teaching. So go on that site and find that teaching. We're going to pick it up from verse 14. John 6, 14. says that these men, when they had seen the sign, that was the multiplication of the loaves and the fish, when they'd seen the sign that Jesus did, said, this is truly the prophet who is to come. Remember, Moses spoke that there would be a prophet that would come. Therefore, when Jesus perceived that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, he departed again to a mountain by himself alone. So their response, this is the prophet, reflects the, pro the popular belief and understanding that a prophet would come, that Moses spoke of, and he would establish an earthly paradise. This sparked their messianic fervor. They wanted to install Jesus right then as the political Messiah and make him a king by force. Jesus refused that and he left the crowd to go be alone with his father. He knew that he would be king, but not by their making. He knew that his kingdom would be established, but it wouldn't be established then. Remember he said in John 18, 36, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would fight that I should not be delivered to the Jews. But now my kingdom is not from here. Timing is so key in the kingdom of God. So let's jump down to verse 25, John 6, 25. In the meantime, Jesus has gone over to the other side of the sea. When they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? And Jesus answered them, Most assuredly, I say to you, you seek me not because you saw the signs that point to my being the Messiah, but because you ate of the loaves and were filled. You want what I can do for you. So he rebuked the people who followed him only for physical and temporal benefits, not to satisfy their spiritual hunger. And that's a good word for us. We need to not just seek the Lord for his temporal and physical benefits but to be hungry for him himself, not for what he can give us, but for who he is. 
Verse 27, he says, do not labor for the food that perishes. So that would be temporal benefits, physical blessings, earthly treasures and pleasures. Don't labor for those, but for the food, the nourishment which endures to everlasting life, which the Son of Man will give you because God the Father has set his seal on him. So what are some of the things that nourish us for eternal life? I thought we could just have a group time here where you shout out some things. What are some things that nourish us, that feed us for eternal life? Reading the Word, Scripture. Thank you. Prayer. Good. Praise. Worship. Intercession. Great. Fellowship with other believers. Community. Fasting. Excellent. You heard John last week. Repentance. Singing. Good. Playing the ukulele. A lot of our team do that. Anything else? Service. Good. Forgiveness. Great. I hope y'all are taking some of these down. Intimacy with Jesus. Hearing the voice of the Holy Spirit. Doing good deeds that glorify God. Sharing the gospel. And taking communion. So that fits right into our message today, and we will be taking communion later today in, in the gathering. So the last part of verse 27 says, God the Father has set his seal on him. I looked this up to see what does this really mean, and it's indicating the times when Jesus was sealed by the Father when he said, this is my beloved Son in whom I'm well pleased. One of the times was in Matthew 7, 5, 17, 5. He was on the Mount of Transfiguration. And God's voice came out of the cloud and he said, This is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. Hear him. Now that's a good word for us too. There are a lot of voices going around. We need to make sure we're hearing him. God the Father set his seal on his son. That means he approved of him. He was beloved of the Father. Let's read verses six, um, chapter 6, 28 and 29. Then they said to him, What shall we do that we may work the works of God? Jesus answered and said to them, This is the work of God, that you believe in him who he sent. So the people were emphasizing their works for God because they were used to doing works. That, that was how they got God's attention, they thought. That's how they, they thought they got his approval. So they were asking him, knowing he's a wise man, What do we do that we will work the works of God? And Jesus corrected that by saying, God doesn't look for work so much. He's looking for those who will believe in his son. Pleasing God does not come from the works we do, but on whom we believe. Our relationship with God is built on the foundational affirmation that Jesus is the Messiah, the son of the living God. So in verse 32 and 33, Jesus said to them, Most assuredly I say to you, Moses did not give you the bread from heaven. In other words, my father did. Moses isn't the one that gave you the bread from heaven. My father gave you the bread. And my father gives you the true bread from heaven. I'm the only one who can satisfy your hunger. The bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. And then in verses 34 and 35, they said to him, Lord, give us this bread always. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. 
He who comes to me and keeps coming to me, not he who comes to me once, he who comes to me and keeps coming to me shall never hunger, and he who believes in me and keeps believing in me shall never thirst. So what do we do? We keep coming to Jesus. We feed on the word of God in the morning and in the evening. We pray throughout the day. We praise and worship him while walking or while driving. We speak of him with others. Jesus' name is on our lips. His love is shed abroad in our hearts. His love is overflowing in us and through us. He is sustaining us and he's impacting the people around us. We feed on Jesus and we carry his life wherever we go. Hold your place there and go over to Deuteronomy chapter 8. Deuteronomy 8, I'm going to read 1, 2, and 3. God is speaking to the Israelites, and he says, Every commandment which I command you today you must be careful to observe, that you may live and multiply and go in and possess the land of which the Lord swore to your fathers. And you shall remember that the Lord your God led you all the way these 40 years in the wilderness to humble you and test you, to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not. So he humbled you, allowed you to hunger, and fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that he might make you know that man shall not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that proceeds from the mouth of the Lord. Notice its present tense. Man lives by every word that proceeds from the mouth of the Lord. Jesus quoted this in Matthew 4 and in Luke 4 when he was being tempted by the devil. Man lives by every word that proceeds, that comes out, that comes forth from the mouth of God. God is always speaking. Therefore, we need to always be listening for his word for our circumstances today, for our friends today, for what's the nations that are in upheaval today. We need to always be listening because he's always speaking and we live by every word that proceeds out of his mouth, not just every word that has proceeded and has been written down. The Holy Spirit is still speaking today. So we want to know the written word of God because what he says to us by the Spirit will always line up with the written word of God. If it contradicts, you know you didn't hear from the Spirit of God. We need to know the written word, but we also need to be attuned to the spoken word of God, the word that proceeds out of his mouth. When you need to make a decision, the Lord might speak to you from the written word, but he also might just speak straight to your heart. You need to be able to hear the voice of the Holy Spirit. So we listen as we meditate on the word of God. Reading God's word will give breadth to our understanding, but meditating on his word will give depth to our understanding. I knew the Lord many years before I knew how to meditate on the Word. And that's basically just to chew it, to ponder it, to read it a few times, to ask the Holy Spirit to teach it to us. What, Holy Spirit, what are you saying to me through this verse? And you continue to go over the Word. You don't just skim over the surface like you do in prayer. You're digging deep for the treasures, the hidden treasures. And so it, sometimes it involves questions. You know, Lord, is this what you're saying? Is this what you're telling me to do? Is this what you said to them back then? What did you mean by that? 
So you're pondering it, you're thinking about it, you're soaking in it. It's kind of like marinating in the Word of God. And you know, it's meditation in the Word that is, sets us up for success. That's what it says in Joshua 1.9. You will meditate on the Word day and night, and by that you will have success. In Psalm 1, it says the man that's planted by the trees of living water that will bring forth fruit in his season, he's the one who meditates on the Word of God day and night. So reading, it's important because we need to know the overall picture. But meditating on it is taking a portion and soaking in that portion and letting the Holy Spirit teach us and speak to us through it. Don't miss that in your disciplines. I can't believe I was so old before I started meditating in the Word. I think I, the first time I even heard teaching on it, I was already about 30 years old or 32 years old. So... <laughs> Hey, man, that was old for me back then. It's not old for me now. What are y'all laughing about? Okay. So, it's not too late to start. And for those of you that are younger, that was old. All right. So, we need both. We need to read the Word. We need to meditate on the Word. And it's as you're memorizing the Word, you are meditating on the Word. So, if you're thinking, I'm not sure how to meditate, then memorize because as you memorize phrase after phrase after phrase, you are meditating on it in the midst of it all. It's bread to our souls to meditate on the Word. So if you are not hungry to read the Word of God, if your soul doesn't long to be in the Scriptures, then I would encourage you to pray for hunger. Pray for spiritual hunger. Pray for a hunger for the Word. There are some practical things we can do to build hunger for the Word of God, and I'm going to give you five. The first is feed the appetite you do have. If you are born again, there is some appetite for you in the Word of God, even though it's stifled and even though you've ignored it. So feed the hunger you do have. Set aside time to read the Bible. Listen to it on an app, on your phone, if you want to go that way. Make deliberate effort to be in church, which you are here today, and hear the preaching of God's Word. Feed the appetite you do have, and it will grow. Spiritual hunger is the opposite of physical hunger. When we're hungry physically, we eat, and then we're satisfied. When we're hungry spiritually, we eat, and then we're hungry for more. Number two, starve competing appetites. Be careful what you put into your mind. Some things decrease your appetite for God's Word. They may not be sinful, but if they divert your attention or diminish your appetite for Scripture, then cut them out of your life, at least for a season. Some competing appetites can include excessive amounts of time on Facebook or other social media. It can be thriller fiction, movies, or video games that dull your senses for real life. It can be so busy that you're exhausted and too tired to engage with the Lord. So starve your competing appetites. And then number three, examine your heart. If you feel no hunger for God's word, there is something wrong. Spiritual sickness is caused by hypocrisy, by bitterness, disappointment, hope deferred, and quenching the Holy Spirit through deliberate sin. So examine your heart. If you're not hungry for the Word, go before the Lord and say, Holy Spirit, <clears throat> show me what's here that is holding me back from being hungry for your Word. Number four, sorry. 
Practice spiritual discipline. Read the Bible even when you don't want to. That will cause your spiritual hunger to return. Discipline eventually turns into desire and then eventually into delight. So you discipline yourself in the Word, then you start desiring to be in the Word, and then you delight to be in the Word. Then you can't get enough of it. So practice spiritual discipline. And on this note, let me just mention, because it hadn't been mentioned before, there are a lot of people <clears throat> fasting while they pray for Israel. Right now there's been a fast called a few days ago to go into November the 2nd, a Daniel fast for three weeks to pray for the nation of Israel. And remember about, I don't know, a couple of months ago, there were a hundred million people around the world praying for Israel. There was a whole move to pray for Israel. And now these people like from the International House of Prayer in Kansas City, some other places where prayer is a, a priority for them, they are saying the Lord knew this war was going to start and he had us be doing advanced praying at that point. Let's not quit praying now. Let's start fasting and praying and continue to push this thing through to the victory that the Lord would have, which is, of course, the least loss of life and the most salvation through it all. Okay, so number four, practice spiritual discipline. Fasting would be part of your spiritual discipline. And then number five, apply truth. When you read the Word, you don't want to just read it for information. You want to read it to know what to do. That's how the Hebrews read the word. They read it to know what to do, how to obey God. What is God saying to them? So we do that too. Lord, we need to know what to do. And we apply it as we read it. That's one of the values of our Tuesday night discipleship. We're not just teaching the word. We get in small groups and we talk about applying the word and being accountable and living out the word of God. When we apply God's word, it conforms us into the image of Jesus and it increases our hunger for more. We want more because we're becoming more and more like the Lord. Our hunger for the word of God is a measurement of our spiritual health. Let me say that again. Our hunger for the word of God is a measurement of our spiritual health. If we are not hungry, we are not healthy. So then we need to work on that. Okay, let's go back to John 6. <clears throat> John 6, from verse 36, we're going to read through 40. Jesus said, I said to you that you've seen me and yet do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and the one who comes to me I will by no means cast out. We're now reading verse 38, John 6, 38. For I've come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. This is the will of the Father who sent me, that of all he has given me, I should lose nothing, but should raise it up at the last day. And this is the will of him who sent me, that everyone who sees the Son and believes in him may have everlasting life, and I will raise him up at the last day. We see that Jesus did not work independently of the Father. He worked in union with the Father. His purpose was to do his Father's will, not to do his own will. When we belong to Jesus, we'll have the same will. We want to do the Father's will. We don't want to do our own will. In verse 39, Jesus said he would not lose even one person whom the Father had given him. Anyone who makes a sincere commitment 
to believe in Jesus Christ as Savior and obey Him as Lord and is faithful to that commitment is secure in God's promise of eternal life. I'm going to say that again. Anyone who makes a sincere commitment to believe in Jesus Christ as Savior and obey Him as Lord. It's not just to believe in Him as Savior. It's to obey Him as Lord and then is faithful to that commitment. Keep coming to Him. Keep eating of Him. Keep drinking of Him. They are secure in God's promise of eternal life. Let's read verses 41 and 42. <clears throat> the Jews then murmured against him because he said, I am the bread which comes down from heaven. And they said, Is not this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How is it that he says, I've come down from heaven? So some of the Jewish leaders were grumbling because Jesus said, I'm the bread that came down from heaven. They said, We know his parents. We know his mom and dad. We know he grew up in Nazareth. He's a carpenter. He didn't come down from heaven. He's not the son of God. We know this guy. They couldn't accept his claim of divinity. They refused to believe that he was God's son. Look how Jesus responds in verses 46 to 51. Look at some of the statements he made in these verses. We're in chapter 6. Okay, 46, listen to what Jesus said. Not that anyone has seen the Father except he who is from God. He has seen the Father. So he's saying, I'm from God and I've seen the Father. No one else has seen the Father. But he who sent from God, he has seen the Father. Verse 47, most assuredly I say to you, he who believes in me has everlasting life. That's a strong statement. Verse 48, I am the bread of life. 49, your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness and are dead. This is the bread which comes down from heaven that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread which came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, speaking of himself, he will live forever. And the bread that I shall give is my flesh, which I shall give for the life of the world. Verse 48, he said, I am the bread of life. This is the first of the seven I am statements of Jesus that he spoke in the book of John. He says three times in John 6 that he is the I am. That's how God identified himself in the book of Exodus. I am that I am. So every time Jesus said, I am the bread of life, I am the light of the world, he is identifying himself with his father. They would have known that better than we know that. So look at John 6:35. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me shall never hunger, and he who believes in me shall never thirst. Look at verse 48. I am the bread of life. Verse 51, I am the living bread which came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live Forever, So Jesus is the living heavenly bread. He provides and sustains life. Anything less is an inadequate substitute. Nothing and no one can satisfy the heart and the soul of man like Jesus can. Pleasures can't. Riches, material things, religion, status, reputation, none of these things can satisfy us. Only Jesus can do that. Only he is the bread of life. 
Now let's read 52 through 58. The Jews therefore quarreled among themselves, saying, How can this man give us his flesh to eat? And Jesus said to them, Most assuredly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up at the last day. My flesh is food indeed, and my blood is drink indeed. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. As the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so he who feeds on me will live because of me. This is the bread which came down from heaven. Not as your fathers ate the manna and are dead, he who eats this bread, the bread of life, Jesus, will live forever. <clears throat> so this was a pretty shocking message to these Jewish men. To eat his flesh and drink his blood spoke of cannibalism to them. The idea of drinking any blood, especially human blood, was offensive. It was disgusting. The law forbade it in Leviticus chapter 17. But Jesus wasn't really talking about literal blood because life is in the blood. He was saying that his life had to become their life. They needed to be so intimate with him. It was as if they were eating his flesh and drinking his blood. They needed to take his life into them. He was to feel their innermost being. To believe in Jesus means to partake of him, to abide in him. When we take communion, we do use some of that terminology. Lord, I'm eating of your flesh. I am drinking of your blood. I need more of you in my life. It's called the meal that heals. There's a lot of healing that comes through communion. That's one of the ways we feed. We are nourished in, in our spirits, in our souls. And so we, um, we, say, we say those words. We don't believe his, that the bread and the, the grape juice become his body and his blood, but we do say, Lord, I'm receiving. I am eating of you. I need more of you in my life. I am drinking of you. I need your blood to cleanse me, spirit, soul, and body. Wash over me. Wash every part of me. Set me apart again today for yourself. Those are ways we can pray today, even as we take communion. His body was broken for our healing. Pray for your healing. Pray for the healing of people in your family and people you know as you take communion. That's one of the ways Reuben and I pray as we take communion together. You don't have to just take communion in church. You can take communion in your own home by yourself or with your family or with your spouse, with your friends. It's not something that is a church institution. It's a God institution. And it feeds us. It ministers life to us. The more we take communion, really the better off we are. For a long time, we took communion together every day, prayed together, prayed for healing for our bodies, prayed for healing for other people that were sick. Then we began to pray for healing for our city, for our state, for our nation. I mean, you can take it any direction as you intercede, as you take the body and the blood of the Lord. Right now, we are being encouraged by these different groups that are praying for Israel to take communion every day and pray for the blood of Jesus for Israel, for Gaza, for the West Bank, for Jordan, for Lebanon, 
or Syria, all over the Middle East. Lord, as I take your body and your blood for me, I am praying your cleansing and your salvation, the blood of Jesus for the Middle East. That's a wise way to pray. We should maybe pray that today as we, if you feel led to as you take that. Turn with me to Jeremiah chapter 31. Jeremiah 31, we're going to read, starting in verse 31, 31 through 34. Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. He made that new covenant in Jesus. Verse 32, not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day that I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant which they broke, though I was a husband to them, says the Lord. But this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my law in their minds. I will write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they shall be my people. No more shall every man teach his neighbor and every man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest of them, says the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity and their sin I will remember no more. So this is a promise for the nation of Israel. These are good verses to pray. Already we see the Lord doing some of this. He's already putting their law in the minds of many of his people. He's writing it on their hearts. There are over 30,000 Jewish believers in Israel today. More coming to faith in Jesus right now. It's a good time to pray for that. But I want to liken it to us too because we're grafted in to the Jewish root. So according to, to Jeremiah 31, God has put his laws, his Torah, his word in our minds because we're in the new covenant. So we can claim this too. He's written it in our hearts. He is our God and we worship him. We will serve no foreign gods. We are his people and we are in covenant with him. So we feed on God's word. That's the core of our being, our spirit and soul. It should be filled with him and his words. We feed on the bread of life. We know him personally and intimately. We don't need people to say, you need to know the Lord, because we do know the Lord. He's forgiven our iniquity. He's chosen not to remember our sin. His life has become our life. So go back to John 6. I'm going to start wrapping it up. John 6, we're going to read verses 60 through 67. Therefore, many of his disciples, when they heard this, said, This is a hard saying. Who can understand it? And Jesus knew in himself that his disciples murmured about this. He said to them, Does this offend you? What then if you should see the Son of Man ascend where he was before? It's the Spirit who gives life. The flesh profits nothing. The words that I speak to you are spirit, and they are life. That's why we need to ingest the Word of God. But there are some of you who do not believe, for Jesus knew from the beginning who they were who did not believe and who would betray him. Verse 65, he said to them, Therefore I have said to you that no one can come to me unless it's been granted to him by my Father. From that time many of his disciples went back and walked with him no more. 
Um, okay, I'm sorry. Verse 67, and Jesus said to the 12, do you also want to go away? So obviously it wasn't the 12 disciples that turned away from him at that point. Who were the disciples that didn't walk with him anymore? Probably the ones he had been training and discipling that are referred to in Luke chapter 10. In Luke 10, Jesus got 70, 72, depending on your version, disciples. He had been training them, and he sent them out to all the cities and the villages, and he said, go preach the gospel, heal the sick, cast out demons. He sent them out to do the work of ministry. So they were pretty well trained. These are some of the disciples that walked with him no more. They turned away when they heard this hard teaching. His 12 disciples stayed with him. So why did his words cause the disciples to desert him? There's four answers here, or four suggestions. They may have realized he was not going to be the conquering Messiah King they expected. By that time, they thought, he's not going to. He's not going to take the throne like we wanted. We wanted to make him king right now. He doesn't want that. He refused to give in to their self-centered requests. He emphasized faith, not works, and they were proud of their works. His teachings were difficult to understand, and some of his words were offensive. Many disciples today are walking away from the Lord. They're not walking with him anymore. And we, too, at times are tempted to turn away when the Lord's lessons are difficult. We might be offended when God doesn't answer our prayers as we wish. Will our response be to give up? to ignore certain teachings, or to reject him altogether? Do we follow Jesus only when it pleases us? When it's easy, when we understand the way he's leading us? Or do we believe and follow because we know he is the one sent from God, the Messiah? We know his words are true, and that he alone can give us everlasting life. Verses 68-69, Simon Peter said to him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. Also, we've come to believe and know that you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Only Jesus has the words of eternal life. And we have come to know and believe that he is the Messiah, the Son of the living God. Let's pray. Lord, I pray that as times get harder and as we are tempted to withdraw from you or to withdraw out of fellowship. We're tempted to be disappointed or angry because you don't answer our prayers the way we want you to. Lord, I pray when these times come that we will stand firm in our faith. I pray that none of us will be sidelined in the name of Jesus. Would you mark us and keep us steadfast after yourself? Lord, knowing that so many now are struggling in their faith, I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would send mentors to them. You would send labors for the harvest to get alongside them, strengthen them in their faith, and continue to point them in the way they're to go. Lord, as we eat your body, the bread of the Lord, as we drink the cup today of your blood, Lord, I pray that you'll minister life to us on whole different levels. You've ministered deeply to us, spirit, soul, and body. I pray for everyone taking communion in all three of our gatherings today, that there will be encounters with the Holy Spirit, and that we'll receive your physical healing. We'll receive your healings in our minds and in our souls. Lord, I pray there'll be a cleansing of your blood, that sin will be forgiven today, iniquity will be wiped out, 
and we will be a people that are set apart again, consecrated unto you for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. So we've got about 10 minutes. Just talk, share around your table anything that stood out to you from reading that chapter yourself or from the teaching this morning. And then um, we'll be dismissed. And next week we're looking at John chapter 7. Please read that. Can I share something? Okay. Just listening to uh, your uh, the 